Well, open your Bibles. There's no good transition out of that, so I'll just say open your Bibles. We're in Exodus chapter 17. And uh, for, by the way, for those of you that I don't know, my name is Rob Sweet, and, and I've been encouraged to see some new faces, so thank you for being here. By the way, thank you for being here. Like everybody that's here, thank you for being here. As you all know, most of our body is still watching online, but you all have chosen to be here. And, and by the way, what I'm about to say, I, I, I'm not um, any, criticizing anyone who is not here. There's a lot of reasons, very legitimate, valid reasons to be at home this morning, but there is nothing like being gathered together in person together. And I really mean that. I think it's good for our own hearts to see one another, to be seen by one another, to hear other voices around you singing the same songs, proclaiming the same truths. Uh, I also think it's, it's good for the people around you to see you. So your presence here is a gift, and I just want to say thank you for being here. It is really good to be together. Okay, uh, let me give a quick recap where we've been in this series, and we're going to, I don't want to spend long on the recap because there's so much depth and richness in this morning's text, but we've been in this wilderness series now for a good while. I think eight weeks, or, or not eight weeks, um, five weeks is how long we've been in this series. And the idea is that God uses the wilderness to shape his people. That's the subtitle of our, of our series title. In other words, it's not just that we endure the wilderness and that there's a silver lining in the wilderness. Oh no. The wilderness is God's purpose. The wilderness is intentional. The wilderness is how God molds us and shapes us and creates us. The wilderness is his tool. So I want you to think about the Israelites were not a people while they were in Egypt. Now, you know, theoretically, they were genetically a people, but they had no government. They had no system. They had no common uh, uh, anything. They did not even know God when they were in Egypt. They were raised in a polytheistic culture. They would have heard, you know, um, rumors of the God of their forefathers, Yahweh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, etc. But it wasn't until God showed up, did miraculous plagues, delivered them from the Egyptians, that they started to have a national identity. And now, how is he going to form them into a people? How is he going to give them government? How is he going to give them rules? How is he going to give them um, worship practices? In the wilderness. He's going to use the wilderness time to literally create a nation, to form a people. So that's the context. And so it's easy for us to kind of grab onto the, the application and say, we're in a wilderness time. In fact, as Lloyd reminded us a couple of weeks ago, we're always in a wilderness time on this earth as we await our true home, which is yet to come, the new heaven and the new earth. And in the meantime, God is forming us. He is shaping us, using the wilderness to form us. Now, let me give you some specific context for the, this morning's passage. This is the first ever battle that the Israelite nation fights in their history. So you can think about the historic importance of that, the very first battle. The first of anything is going to teach you some things. It's going to be formative. So, you know, your, your first steps, your first job, your first date, your first child, you know, all these things, these firsts of your lives, they shape and they form you, your experience. This is the first battle that the nation of Israel ever fought, and God's going to use it to teach them some very, very powerful lessons Interestingly, we know from Exodus 13, which we studied at the start of the series, that the Israelites were not immediately ready for battle when they left Egypt. In fact, I'll put this verse up on the screen. This is the very first verse that we studied in the whole series back five weeks ago, Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war. And return to Egypt. So God knew when they left Egypt immediately, they weren't ready for battle. 
And he knew that if he led them into a battle at that point in time, they would say, we're going back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves than lose our lives in a battle because they weren't ready for battle. But now, fast forward four chapters in our text, Exodus 17, God is going to lead his people into battle. What changed? They're ready. They're ready. And by the way, one of the reasons that they're ready is they now have weapons. Um, scholars have puzzled over where did they get the weapons to fight the Amalekites in our text this morning. And, you know, here's what we know. They would not have had weapons in Egypt. You know, the, the, the nation that was enslaving them would not have given them weapons. They wouldn't have gotten weapons coming out of Egypt either. Um, they, we know that they plundered Egypt of their, their gold and possessions because the people just wanted to send them on their way, you know, get rid of the evil spirits. That was the perspective of the Egyptians. You know, the, the, your God has done all these plagues on us. Be gone and we'll give you all these offerings on the way out. But they did not give them weapons. So how do they get the weapons? More than likely... They took the weapons from the bodies of the dead Egyptians that washed to the shore when the Red Sea crashed around them. Think about that for a minute. That is spectacular provision from God to take the very weapons that the enemy intended to use against the nation and invert that so now these become weapons of defense for the nation of Israel. So God has gotten them ready, he's prepared them, and now he's going to send them into battle. And that's our text this morning, the first battle that they will ever fight. So we'll, we'll cover it in these four sections. We're gonna flow right through the text, verse by verse, and here's how it breaks down. The enemy, the staff, the battle, the memorial. The enemy... The staff, the battle, the memorial. Let's start with the enemy. Verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Okay, the enemy is Amalek. Who in the world is Amalek? The first thing to know about Amalek is it was not a man, it was a group. It was a people group. Amalek would have originally been a man. He would have been the forefather of, these people group, of this people group. So notice in our verse, it says, Amalek fought with Israel. Israel, we know of as a nation, but Israel was first a man. So in that day, you would name a group of people after the forefather, after kind of the, you know, this was my grandfather's grandfather's grandfather that started this group of people, the clan, the tribe, whatever. So it would have been the group of people that were descended from Amalek. We know very little about the Amalekites, as they would have been called. Uh, and there's a reason we know very little about them, which we'll get to at the end of the text. What we do know is they were nomads. They were kind of wanderers in the desert region south of Canaan, which is where the Israelites were at this time. Interestingly, we believe they were descendants of Esau. So you think about Jacob and Esau, and God chose Jacob by which to, to make his people, make his nation. Esau went on to have you know, multiple people groups that descended from Esau. One of those people groups were the Amalekites. And we know one more important thing about the Amalekites from another text in scripture that gives us context for what was going on in Exodus 17. You don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 25, Moses is instructing the people right before they enter into the promised land. So think about it this way. This is 40 years in the future from our text this morning. They've been in the wilderness 40 years. They're about to go into the promised land. This is what Moses says to the people. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So this is the context of this battle. These Amalekites had kind of been like a pack of hyenas 
hanging back behind these people as they went through the desert and the, the sick of the Israelites, the, the elderly of the Israelites, the weak, the vulnerable of the Israelites were in the back of the pack and the Amalekites were like picking them off like wild animals. And, and again, it says they had no respect for God. So that's the context of what's happening here. The Amalekites are attacking the Israelites and now God's gonna call the Israelites to fight back. That's the enemy in verse eight. Let's go on verse nine where we're gonna see the, the staff. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, you know, think about this from just a pure physical battle standpoint. What's one little staff going to do against the Amalekites? But it obviously is important to Moses if he's highlighting it. He's saying, listen, tomorrow I'm going to go up on that hill and I'm going to stand not to direct the battle, not with bow and arrows, not with artillery cannon, with the staff of God in my hand. There's something significant about that. I brought a staff with me this morning. Like this is a staff, okay? So I wanted you to see this because when you picture Moses, he wouldn't have had one of those, um, you know, Great Smoky Mountain National Park walking sticks. You know, he would have had one of these big, Big staffs because you needed something in the wilderness to fend off the wild animals. Let's talk about this staff. It's so significant. In fact, you could do a great study of Exodus just by uh, following the staff throughout the story. The first time we, we encounter the staff, it's not the staff of God, as it says in our text this morning, it's Moses staff. This is Moses staff. It's back at the burning bush. So Moses is a shepherd in Midian. God shows up to Moses in the burning bush. You guys remember this story. Most of you remember this story. And he, he calls Moses to be a leader to, to let the people go from bondage in Egypt. And Moses is hesitant. So what God does is he wants to prove his power. And he says, Moses, take your staff. And he, he is just this plain old piece of wood. It's all it was. Nothing magical, nothing sacred, nothing holy. It's just a regular old staff. But God does his work through the staff. And God says, throw it down. Moses throws down the staff. It becomes a serpent. Moses starts running away. God says, don't be afraid. Pick up the serpent by the tail. Now, if you know anything about snakes, which Moses would have known as a shepherd out in the wilderness, you never pick up a deadly snake by the tail. But God was teaching Moses how to trust him. So Moses obeys. He picks up the serpent by the tail. Guess what? Turns back into a staff as soon as he touches it. And through that staff, God does the miracles in Egypt, the plagues. So one of the plagues turns the Nile River into blood with the staff of God. And all throughout the plagues, most of them, the staff is involved. When they get out of Egypt, it's the staff that parts the water, the Red Sea. Now, not the staff, but God's power working through the staff. You see, this is how this works. Another text, which we didn't have time to cover in our series, but the, the, the previous story to our text uh, today is one where God tells Moses to strike a stone, strike a rock with the staff, and water comes out to create an oasis. The power is in God working in the symbol of the staff. So the staff became a symbol for God's salvation power. So when you get to Exodus 17, notice our text again. I will stand on the top of the hill with whose staff? God's staff. It's Moses' staff that's now become God's staff because he's chosen to work through the staff. Now, isn't this interesting? One more thing I want you to notice on this is he's standing, he's saying the staff of God in my hand. So there is something interesting here about God's power mediated through human agent. 
And we're going to trace that theme more in the series later, but it is really significant in this one. So it's Moses the leader, his hand on the staff. But the power is God's. The staff represents God's power. Now, Moses' hand on the staff is very significant. So as we go through the next verses in our text, I want you to track the movement of Moses' hand. And you're going to note the reason it's important is because in the hand is the staff of God, which represents God's power. Now, let's look at the next verses, and we'll talk about the battle. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. If you've got a pen or a pencil, let's circle every time we see the word hand or hands. The first one is, uh, says, when, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Isn't that fascinating? Keep going. Moses' hands grew weary. They took a stone, put it under him. He sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now, when you see repetition like that in the Bible, pay attention. The author is communicating something to us. And the word hand or hands shows up five times in four verses. And so the first observation about the battle is the action of the battle followed Moses' hands. What's the significance of that? What does this mean? It, it, the movement of Moses' hands represented dependence upon God's power or dependence upon their own power. Remember, the staff symbolized God's power. So when the hand was up, the staff was up. and Everybody could see the staff of God. And remember, God's the one that delivers. God's the powerful one. It's God's power, not our own swords, not our own spears. And the battle was theirs. But when Moses would get tired, the staff would come down. The focus is on their own strength, their own, or, or lack thereof, you know, forgetting about the power of God. They would lose the battle. Now, one of the things I love about this battle is it's so clear that the power was not in the leader. Moses was weak. Moses grew weary. I love the way the text so honestly describes him. And by the way, it would have been Moses himself writing this later on. You know, the spirit speaking through Moses as Moses authored these words later in life. Moses is, is showing he was weak. He was powerless. He was weary. In fact, in the pivotal moment of the, the battle, you don't see, you know, Moses up on the hill with strength proclaiming victory. You see this, this feeble Moses that's, that's collapsed on a rock with these men around him just holding up his hands because Moses has no more strength. So it's God's power flowing through a weak human being. That's the formula that's prevailing here. Trusting God, but it's God's power. By the way, I love the picture of leadership with these other two men around Moses, the senior leader, these other two men lifting up his hands. What a picture of, of our value at fellowship better together. 
what a picture for us of our shared leadership model. We don't have one senior pastor. We've got multiple teachers. We've got a board of elders. We've got a leadership team. We, we, we approach things from living out that value. It's a biblical principle, the plurality of leadership. And that is very well represented here in this text. So our first observation here is the action of the battle followed the hands of Moses and that represented their dependence on God or their dependence on their own strength. And they knew it was so important that these other, these other leaders came around and made sure that his hands stayed up because in his, Moses' hands was the staff of God. Our next observation, this is really interesting to me, the focus of the action is on the hill, not the battlefield. I want you to think about how this story is told. In any military movie I've ever seen, when there's a battle scene, the focus of the camera is on the fighting. You, you know what I mean? And maybe they cut to the general every now and then sitting up on the hill watching. But, but the focus is, is in the battle. It's in the swords. It's in the spears. It's in the blood. It's in, that's the real fight, right? Not according to this text. The focus of the narration, you know, if this were a movie, it'd be the lens of the camera, is not focused on the battlefield, it's focused on the hill because it was on the hill that the battle was truly won. Because the question came down to, in their very first battle, will God's people depend on God's power or their own power? God's strength or their own strength? Here's a very interesting implication of this. It means Israel's battle was spiritual, not physical. Their real battle was spiritual. In other words, will they depend upon God's strength? Will they look to their one true God that delivered them? Or will they think, okay, now it's up to us to fight with our swords and our strategies and our muscles? This is true for us too, you see. The real battle is spiritual, not physical. Let's apply this to our lives. Uh, I want to start with putting on the screen Ephesians 6.12. And this is Paul, years later in the New Testament, speaking directly to Christians, you and me. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is fascinating on a lot of levels. Just leave this verse up for a couple of minutes. Number one, notice that Paul, he doesn't say, for God doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers. He says, for we, Christians, human beings that follow God, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. So our battle too is spiritual more than physical. And then from that verse, right after that, guess what comes next? The armor of God. So Paul says, put on the armor of God. And he talks about military weapons and military armor as an analogy to point to the real armor, the real weapons, the spiritual armor, the helmet of salvation, belt of truth, all these other things, breastplate of righteousness. And he says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the, the one offensive weapon here. What Paul is saying is he's saying, don't forget the battle is actually spiritual. It's in the spiritual realm and you and I are in it. Now guys, this should not be hard to apply to the summer of 2020. 
what a wreck it feels like the society is, the culture is, the government is, the political tension is, and nobody agrees with anything. Schools don't, are not, not knowing what to do. We've got this virus out there. There's all these different kinds of things. And, and what this Spirit of God would speak through the text this morning is, don't forget, don't forget, you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness. Um, and here's what I want to say. It, it's, 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 first of all, critical that we remember that the real battle is spiritual, not physical. But right after that, you also have to remember this. Don't forget the battle rages closest in the sacred place of your own heart where two, pow two powers are fighting for control. So while you're out there singing, man, look, look at all that crazy stuff out there. Don't forget to start with your own heart and say, how's, how, how am I doing internally? How's my walk with God? How's my humility? How's my love for people? How's my expression of grace toward those I, I disagree with? How's my fear? How's my trust? Do you see? That's where the battle is closest to home for each of us. Don't forget that. The battle is spiritual, and it starts right in each and every one of our own hearts. And from there, we're able to live it out and, and be vessels of the battle in, in the culture and world around us. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. So let me start putting these pieces together, these observations, and I want to give you what I think is the powerful, clear lesson from this whole text. And then I'll finish the text out. But let me go ahead and give you the lesson. It starts with this phrase. Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength. Now, I'm going to keep going. Uh, we're having some tech issues, so we might not be able to put these on slides. Uh, I'll read them several times so you can write them down if you want to. And then when we solve the tech issues, hopefully we'll be able to get them up there. So the first part of the lesson is this. Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength. And if you want to put a dot, dot, dot on there, I'm going to keep going in just a minute. Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength. There's no other, you can't miss that lesson in this text. The symbol of God's power high, the victory is the Israel's. When it disappears in low, victory is the enemy's. Victory in the wilderness, your wilderness, my wilderness, your struggle, my struggle, the, the fear we're in, all the stuff we're in. Victory is coming from God's strength. It's going to come from God's strength, not ours. It is always true for every battle you fight, not your own strength. How easily we forget and lower our gaze from the true source of power and instead fight our battles in our own strength. How easily we forget. Now let me continue the phrase. Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength as we act. I'm not done. I've got more dot, dot, dots at the end of that, but let's talk about this. I just introduced attention, didn't I? Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength as we act. Now, this is interesting. Rob, I thought you said victory is God's. I thought you said, you know, Moses was weak and all these kinds of things to show that it's God's power, not his power. Yes, yes, yes. But notice that God calls the people to fight. God could have dealt with the Amalekite problem without an army. Think about the way he dealt with the Egyptian problem with the Red Sea. He, he literally told the people, he said, just be quiet and watch. God could have done something similar. God could have come and said, hey, by the way, um, Israelites, I've noticed that the Amalekites have been uh, coming in like a pack of hyenas and attacking your weak and your vulnerable. I'm going to fix that problem for you. I'm going to open up the earth and I'm going to swallow them. Or I'm going to like, bring some like 
I don't know, like pterodactyls or something. If those are around, I don't, know, I don't think they were. And like, just take them off. I mean, they could have done it a lot of different ways. Anything God wanted to do, he could just zap them with whatever he wanted to do. He didn't do that. Instead, he says, I want you to choose some men and go fight. This is generally the way God works. His power exercised through human agency because this is why he created human beings to represent his rule on the earth, to bear his image, and, and in Christian terminology, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, you see. It's, it's such an interesting idea and an interesting tension. It's God's strength, yet we're called to go out and fight. We're called to act. The power is God's, but the actual blows to the enemy in this text came through human beings and actual muscles and reflexes. And th- Isn't this fascinating? One last phrase to really complete this. Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength as we act in dependence on him. Uh, we, we get confused a lot of times. We think that the goal of life is independence from authority, from parents, from God, ultimately. The goal in life is never independence from God. The goal in life is always dependence on God. And this might be one of the most important lessons God is using the wilderness to ingrain in the collective identity of the Israelite people. So if you put this all together, just one complete thought, here it is. Victory in the wilderness comes through God's strength as we act in dependence on him. And, and guys, I'll just say, as I've thought about this lesson more and more, you can apply this to whatever part of the wilderness you're sitting in right now. And I'm not saying it's easy. I, I'm not saying that just realizing this makes your problems go away. I'm not saying any of that. But, but, but I believe that this is how the, but the, the Bible describes this tension, God's strength, our actions, but only when we act dependently on God. And that's the big lesson God was teaching the people of Israel through this first battle. And that's the big lesson I think he's teaching the people of God in our battle right now today. Because this is the living word of God for us today. We've talked about the enemy, the staff, the battle. One more. We'll close up with this, the memorial. Memorial. I'm going to go on to our text, verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Um, This is the first instance in the Bible of the writing of official records. I think that's interesting. It's previewing the part of the story we're going to talk about next week, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, But it's significant. It's so significant that God does not want them to forget. He says, write it down so it will last. Make a memorial. Uh, There's a cool pun going on in the Hebrew that fortunately carries over into the English as well. Uh, If you look at the word memorial and then look at the word memory, they're they're the same root in Hebrew and in English. That is true. So, So here's the pun is the memory or the memorial of the victory will be lasting, but the memory of the Amalekites will be wiped 
It'll be blotted. It'll be gone. And so why is it that we know nothing about the Amalekites today? Well, this has come true. We know nothing about this people group. They don't exist anymore. The only things we know about them is from these records in the scripture about how they would harass the people. And, you know, by the way, they're going to hang around a little while and there's going to be continued warfare, but eventually they're gone. They're gone. So I wanted you to be able to see that contrast. And then let's talk about memorials for just a minute. Why create a memorial? God wanted his people to learn something and then never forget it. So God is saying, write this down to help you remember. Moses also built an altar to help them remember. Memorials are powerful things. Let me tell you why. Memorials take us back to moments in time where God's power and provision were more clear than they may be at this moment in time. Memorials anchor our faith. In a world of discouragement and distractions, memorials refocus our minds on what is true. Memorials are saying, listen, I may not see it right now with my eyes, but I remember that time. We wrote it down. We celebrated it. It is there. It is true. God is real. God is provider. God is deliverer. It says, make a memorial. And by the way, I'm, I'm not getting into the whole, you know, statues debate and, and all that. I, I, I will just say this. Good memorials are worth remembering. They're worth preserving. But, but good memorials, and by the way, memorials in Scripture are all about God. Memorials in Scripture are about God's power, God's strength. Those are the things we need to remember. God's deliverance. God's ultimate Sovereignty, those are the kinds of memorials that I would call us to the most, and memorials are powerful things. Now, this morning, we are going to celebrate with a memorial of our own. And so I want you to get out the cup and the bread. I left mine on my chair, so I'm gonna grab it. Go ahead and um, just peel back that top cellophane to get the bread part. And you know, if you've, not, if you've not worked with these before, they're a little tricky. You gotta peel back just the very top clear layer, layer first to get that little wafer out, little uh, round wafer. Uh, just hold on to it though. I don't want you to take it yet. Let me talk about this for a little bit. And if, I know there's a lot of distractions, but, but focus on this next part because if you miss this next part, I think you've missed really where the, the spirit would take us in this text in the, the most profound way. I, wrote a, I read a commentary when I was preparing this message um, on Exodus by Peter Enns. It's one of my favorite Exodus commentaries. And this is what he says that's tie, will tie it to the table in a profound way. The defeat of the Amalekites is not simply an isolated battle from Israel's past. It is an early manifestation of a grander and more basic battle, one that comes to a head on the cross and in the empty tomb. So what he's saying here is he's saying the, the root of this battle, even thousands of years ago, the very first battle the Israelites ever fought, it was a spiritual battle. There was spiritual warfare going on. And you trace that through the thousands of years of history, and that culminated at the defining moment of the war at the cross and the empty tomb where Jesus Christ was the victor over Satan, over the spiritual realm, over the spiritual domain. Ends goes on to write this. The daily battles to be won must be seen within the context of the cosmic battle that Christ has already won. 
Guys, the more you and I can lift our eyes above this craziness to the cosmic battle that Christ has already won, the more hope, the more peace, the more joy, the, more, the better decisions we're going to make, the better we'll be able to engage our neighbors, the more trust. I'm, I'm telling you guys, there's so much here. Lift your eyes to the hill. See the outstretched hands of your leader on top. The power of God in him, flowing through him, dying for you, winning the victory. The war has been won. The skirmishes continue. But men and women, the war has been won, and this is our memorial of it. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has triumphed over Satan. So I want you now to take this bread in your hands, and I want you to remember what it points to. Here's what this bread memorializes, because this is no question. This is a memorial. This bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. He is our bread in the wilderness, and his death was a victory over death for us. Now let's eat this. Peel back the, the second layer, that, the purple uh, cover on, on this little cup, and, and just see how, how the juice, just hold it in your hand, don't drink it just yet. Before we drink it, I want to remind us what this cup is a memorial of. It represents, it points to the shed blood of Christ. We are remembering this at this time. That in love for us, Jesus Christ climbed to the top of a hill and he stretched out his hands so that our battle would be won by him. And that so our victory would come through faith just as the Israelites' victory was won through faith. Not our strength. Jesus' strength, let us drink. Amen.